Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I have fallen in love with the poetry of Juby Ariola Headley, exploring themes of manhood, vulnerability, rage, tenderness, and joy. His work speaks truth to those of us reckoning with who we've been and who we want to be. Juby is a queer Black poet and storyteller, and his debut collection is called Original Kink. Our conversation explores his relationship with his late father and his intimate and profound friendship with the late and great Craig G. Harris. We discuss carrying on a legacy, gifts and grief, how we create the thing we wish we had, and Juby's coming of age during the AIDS crisis. And in a moment of particular resonance for me, Juby speaks about what it means to bear witness to our own failures. He opens our conversation with his poem, Peacocking. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Juby Ariola Headley. boy right it's this silly game i play with myself scavenging for scraps of conversation out of context like peacocks in the arctic or tenderness expressed in baritone and here in this department store like every other i'd found it a single word sharp and swift to fisher boy. Perhaps the boy had stared too long at the man behind the cosmetic counter. Gothic arches penciled in where eyebrows once grew. Perhaps the boy had lingered, longing, lusting, fingered the fabric of some skirt or blouse as the man I can't imagine is his father, brisked him through the missus section. This boy, broken, his stride, his spirit. While some woman I can only imagine the boy called mother guided her gaze toward anywhere but this moment. She's long seated hope for something soft in the boy. I wish I didn't know the rest of his story, how butterflies won't so much settle in a boy's belly as slit their own throats for fear of flamboyance. How a boy must fashion his fists into ciphers for touch. How quick we are to teach a boy to cradle his hurt in his hands and preen. Oh. 
<laughs> um, the, the bit that really gets me is I wish I didn't know the rest of his story, how butterflies won't yeah. so much settle in a boy's belly as slit their own throats for fear of flamboyance. Yeah. It's interesting. This poem began as a moment. A lot of my poems literally begin as moments. I was sitting in a department store waiting for my husband and a friend to finish shopping for something. I don't know what. And I'm looking at my phone as you do when you're waiting for folks. And out of nowhere, I hear you a boy, right? In that voice that the queer of us know all too well. And I looked up and there is a man looking just disgusted. And like he wants to hurt something. And there is a boy walking a little bit in front of him, maybe three steps, looking like his world is crushed. And there's a woman to the right of the man who's looking like she'd rather be anywhere else but in this space. And I could not let that image go for weeks. And that's how this poem was kind of born. Just thinking little moments like that that man probably won't remember it, didn't remember it 20 minutes later, but that boy will hold on to that moment until he's 51. And what will that do to him? And how long will it take him to feel whatever he feels about living his authentic self? Because, you know, the reality is we don't know what's going on in that boy's head. Mm. We don't know if that boy's queer or not queer. That boy just made the mistake of doing something that his father did not identify with masculinity or manhood. And now whatever he perceives as the way he can move through the world will always be perverted because of that little moment. Or so I thought at the time. <laughs> yeah. I sent the poem immediately to someone I knew and I thought this is you. <laughs> mm. This is this is what this feels like and I have to tell you that one, as soon as I read Peacocking, I thought I have to speak to Juby immediately. <laughs> I, I, that, I was hooked. Um, and I you. think it is a tremendous, Original Kink is a tremendous body of work. And it has just, it has lit me up. It has made me cry. It has broken my heart. And we'll get into that. But I just thank, thank you, so you for doing that, for, for putting it out in the world. Thank you so much. All I really tried to do was tell the truth. Uh, I was in the workshop a couple of years ago and Willie Perdomo, who's a wonderful poet, look him up, read his stuff, um, said to us, those of us in the workshop, write the hard poem. And that's all I ever try to do. I am in my mind always trying to write toward you, toward community, toward other folks. I think I'm asking questions like, is it just me in the world? thinking this way and experiencing these things. And I know it's not, and this is my way of reaching out and saying, yes, me too, to borrow some terminology um, and to try to write away from us being erased. So- Well, and you know, I feel this is busy being black, right? That every conversation mm -hmm. begins as a question effectively or I'm struck by something mm -hmm. or I read something and I think I want to dive into this a bit further. And okay. with Busy, I've tried to create something that I think that I would have benefited from years ago. Do you feel yeah. the same with your work? Absolutely. I, I feel a strong responsibility 
I'm not a teacher. I don't think of myself as a teacher and I'm not trying to write instructive poems. That's not my goal. I'm just trying to create a little moment in the world that I hope resonates with some other folks like, yeah, me too. Yeah, this is what happened for me. And maybe if I'm lucky, I can help some other folks avoid those moments. Or, and this is, I recognize in retrospect after having read it, written it rather, um, this is one of my goals. If I can help that father understand what he's doing, I would love to do that. So I'm running toward us, mm. but I'm hoping that the audience isn't just us. I'm hoping that the audience is that mama and that papa thinking about the ways in which they indoctrinate their kids, the ways in which they limit and constrain their kids because of notions they have about how we should walk through the world. So, yeah, but, and, and but I'm sorry to interrupt, but just that these, yeah, this yeah. just popped into my head that, that these corrective moments are, are almost by rote. You know, that yeah, yeah. I can remember conversations with my mom and my dad that they don't remember. As you said earlier, this boy's gonna remember that until he's 51. And that I consider to be foundational to my understanding of myself or my yeah. capacity for love and acceptance or um, kindness. Yeah. Um, and, but it strikes me that you, you picked up on something that I feel must be rooted in something much grander Mm -hmm. As in, in much more personal is what I mean. Yeah. And so if you were to begin to talk about a young Juby, if we used uh -huh. peacocking as a launching pad for a young Juby, how much you get there? You know, young Juby was a quiet soul. He was like a lot of us. He was a bookworm. He had a flashlight so that he could stay up till 1 a.m. reading books. Um, he had friends. He played in the neighborhood. Um, he went to good schools where he code switched because the people in his schools weren't the people in his neighborhood, but he also code switched in his own home. There was who Juby found himself turning into, becoming, and that was very inconsistent. He was very aware with who he was expected to be, who everybody else around him seemed to be trying to be. So, and you know, this odd thing I'm doing about talking about young Juby in the third person, it is me. <laughs> it, it does feel a lot removed in, this, in a certain sense, but I have very, and this is, it's interesting you say, I have very strong memories of moments that shaped me that my parents, well, my father died 25 years ago, God rest his soul, but that my mother, for example, can't remember or doesn't at all remember the same way. But I think you're right. I think the ways in which we are taught that there is a thing called man and men act certain ways and you're doing things that fall very clearly outside of how man is circumscribed. And I expect you to know this and I don't understand why you don't know this. And I think you know this and are throwing it at me anyway. And I will beat that out of you if I need to. That's a very real thing a lot of us face. I um, was a person who was spanked as a kid. I don't think that was so much the issue. I was often terrified of my father, not because I thought I would get a spanking, but more because I was very clear that who I was becoming inside was antithetical to who in his mind I was supposed to be. And he was 
a big man. And I mean that in stature, but in personality, he was a man's man. He was the guy who was everybody's best friend. He was the one that if you got into a fight, you would call and look to. He was the one that told the best joke, laughed the loudest that the women looked at, um, that he looked back at, because there was a lot of that in my childhood. Um, so I had this larger than life image of what an idealized man was supposed to be, because I'm very clear that I was supposed to accept that as an idealized man. My father was not a was not possessed of any humility. My father was a pretty arrogant man. He was highly confident. And I don't even mean that in a pejorative sense. I just, that's how he was framed in the world to me. He was highly confident. He was secure in who he was. He was secure in his sexuality. All he had to do was smile at a woman the right way and she would drop for him. <laughs> that is who my father believed himself to be. And that's how we walked through the world. And as far as I can tell, that's who other folks believed him to be. And I am this young queer kid thinking, I like boys. And I keep having dreams about boys. And I keep feeling this attraction for boys and men around me. And I can't tell anyone because my world will come crashing down. Because I was very clear that whatever age it might have been that I would have come out, 11, 12, 13, I was either going to be sent to be reindoctrinated or I was going to be thrown out. I, it was never a question in my head. Did either of those things happen? No, no. Um, I was very closeted um, until my father died when I was 18. Um, I am somewhat certain that my coming out process would have been very different if he was still alive in my late teens and early 20s. I think back to that often and wonder exactly how, but I felt a certain freedom once my father was gone. For a long time, I felt guilty about that, but, um, and part of my work in going through the world as me is forgiving myself for realizing that it took that at that moment in my life for me to become my authentic self or me, for me to feel comfortable to even embark on that journey but these are real things that happen in the world and maybe if he were around today we would have come to an understanding like i have with my mother um maybe we wouldn't have we'll never know but you were born in the 1960s it's okay, right? yes. I was uh, born no, in I... 1969, <laughs> right at the tail end of the 60s. I'm just, I was yes. trying to do the math with my mom and my dad. and just have to figure out where. Yes. I will be 52 in July. Okay, fine. And so you're, so you're coming of age. Uh, I've got mm -hmm. so many questions. I'm trying to narrow them yeah. down. <clears throat> I want to ask about when you became a poet. But first, I, I want to talk about sure, sure, sure. your coming of age. So yeah. you're born in 1969. Yeah. You You're know, kind of coming into your adolescence in the 80s, right? Exactly. I And where are you in the U.S. at this point? I live in Boston. I was born and raised in Boston, which okay. is a whole other story which we can get into. But it's fascinating because, you know, people my age, we came after the wildness, the revolutionary spirit of the 60s and 70s, what was painted for me from people who were in their teens and early 20s in that era, as wild and free exploration um, into, I was born, I was hitting puberty at the time we stopped calling it ARC and started calling it HIV and AIDS. 
So literally, I was born into and and sexually matured into a moment where who I was was destined for death. I expected for the first 30 years of my life that I was going to be dead. Yeah, so let's be more specific. So so yeah. I think they, they kind of named it HIV AIDS in, 80, is it 84 or is it later than that? No, I think it's about 84. I think it's about 84. I am not your epidemiologist, so we might need to go back and check on that, but in the (laughs) mid-80s. Right. I think 1982, I'm turning 13. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. 1983, I'm 14, 98, 5, I'm 50. So you're coming into your understanding of your sexuality as a teenager against the backdrop of of death. Exactly. And we're not in, it's nothing like 2020 or 2010 or even 2000. There is nothing called the internet. High schools don't have gay straight alliances. Um, homosexuality is not depicted on the large screen almost ever. And when it is, it's depicted tragically. So I don't have the benefit of other information to tell me that me being gay is not a death sentence. All I know is from the news, me being gay is a death sentence. So this is what a lot of us who were around that era were thinking of. And we found ways to connect. Quite honestly, I spent a lot of my teen years cruising because it was the only way I knew how to connect. And I can't remember now how I stumbled upon the bathroom in the basement of the Boston Public Library. I assume <laughs> I was there to do research mm-hmm. for a project for school. But <laughs> when quotes. I did, um, there was a semester in my junior year that I had to forge a note from a doctor explaining why I had missed so many days because I spent a lot of time at the Boston Public Library. I got a handle on it and I spent less in my junior year when I realized what I wanted to do was go to college. But those were the avenues we knew were available to us then. I I figured out eventually where the gay bookstore was, which I'm not gonna judge myself, healthier or not, you can decide listeners, but I figured out where the books were and where resources were my senior year. And it happened to be right across from the Boston Public Library. But those were my resources. There was cruising, there were bars, there was the gay bookstore. Um, And you had to figure out how to find the gay bookstore because nobody was advertising where it was. There was nowhere to go find it. And a lot of my coming out process or coming of age process was stumbling upon. I'm running into, and I'm lucky because I grew up in Boston, a major city with, I recognize in retrospect, as visible a LGBTQ population as one could expect in the middle of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Um, If I had been in Wyoming or Arkansas or Mississippi, who would I have been? Yeah. Because it would have been so different. Um, So I had the benefit of a little bit of urbanity around me. I can't even imagine what other folks did. Yeah, I spoke to another elder who said that, you know, he came out, he came out just as the AIDS crisis hit here in the UK, and he contracted HIV. And he thought, well, I'm not going to live. And so I'm not going to survive this rather. And so he just lived. And he said, I didn't save money. I didn't think about my future. I didn't buy a house like it it completely shaped his thinking until the onset of antiretrovirals. It's and I fully understand that. I do not know by what good graces or by what circumstance in the universe I continue to be HIV negative, which I am. 
but it's not like I was actively practicing that. I literally believed I was going to die. And I also didn't have the faculty or the training or the role model to tell me to how to navigate the conversation around let's have safe sex. Mm. That's not what I was doing for most of the first 10, 15 years of my sexual life. And so I understand fully where that person's coming from. I literally believed, oh, well, I'm, I'm probably going to die. It's a matter of time. And people, role models, mentors. One of, the, um, one of the poems in this book, we were talking about it um, in our last conversation. Every God is a slowly mm. dying son is written to my mentor, Craig G. Harris, um, who I met in college. He was about 10 years ahead of me in college. And they had an alumni conversation um, about, I think it was professional development and a reading. It was this combination of black alumni coming back and he was one of them. And I don't know what I thought the world was or what I thought it meant to be a man or a black man or a black queer man before that. But all I can tell you is I looked up and there was this man in this baby blue grand boo-boo and matching hat and pants and these fabulous like crocodile skin shoes with this booming voice and this presence and this just swagger and this swing and this flair and this sass. And I was in love and then turned on and entranced and undone. I just knew I had to meet him. So once the reading was done, I can't tell you any more elegantly than I literally threw myself at him. I was like, <laughs> I don't know how to connect with you because nobody's taught me how to do these things, but I need you to see me. It felt desperate. I wanted that man and not even a sexual way, although partially a sexual way, I'm not gonna lie. I needed him to see me like I needed air to breathe. I don't know how to say that, any different it makes and, sense though yeah and for whatever reason he didn't he took me under his wing but i bring all that up to say i think but about we it should, now craig g harris was kind of uh, you know he was alongside essex hemphill and marlon riggs exactly. and asado saints like he's one of the one of our, yes. our our gay forefathers exactly um and i was meeting him this must have been like late 88 early to mid 1989 i had so little time with him when you think about it he died in november of 1991 um but yes, the, I was introduced to a black gay, black queer culture in New York City, which at least in 1989, 1991, what I believed was if you were gonna be black and gay, there was no better place to be black and gay than New York City. So I was introduced to not only sort of the bar scene and the ball scene, but also all these amazing writers like Essex Hemphill and Asado Saint and Donald Woods and Blackberry and, and so many others. And there was this sort of urgency and, and vibrancy and revolutionary spirit about how they were creating and how they were creating community and what they were writing and how they were expressing themselves that just felt like I was just blessed to be a part of that moment. And historically, it feels like it was a moment because I think in retrospect, these men understood 
the urgency of 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 expressing themselves and sharing who they were with us because like Craig, like Essex Hempel, like so many of them, they had AIDS and they had, as far as they knew, and this is before, this is before antiretroviral That's therapy. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, Craig's cocktail of drugs was stunning in its quantity, in its cost, and in its effects on his system. Mm. All of those things thoroughly depressed me and I, I that's me an external watcher imagine what they did to him and all of our people all of our beautiful brilliant um queer folks were going through this who had HIV I think they understood how little time they had with us and they created and they spoke and they defined fierce in ways that still impact me. Yeah, but, I'm thinking of Darius Boast's The Evidence of Being. And yeah. he, you know, he writes that people like Melvin um, Dixon and Essex Hemphill exactly. and, you know, Craig Harris, they yeah. were writing absolutely against the backdrop of a finite life, right? Of, of, yeah. of an impending death. But that yeah. they also wrote as a gift, and they also wrote to instruct, and they also wrote to express, and they also created okay. so that we would know that they were here, and that our job now is to make sure we say their names. Exactly. And to not I only see them as, as kind of limited to the yeah. time in which they, they, they made, they were most prolific in their work, or most prodigious yeah. in their work. What we got was, you need to understand the beauty that is us. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how we define us, not how you see us. We are creating something that does not exist. We are creating a space that doesn't exist for us and those who come after us. I think they were very deliberate and clear about their mission. The kinds of conversations I had with Greg, Craig, Craig was absolutely comfortable. And the other folks he introduced me to knew they had a job to do as mentors and knew that they had limited time to do it and knew that they had limited time to create their space in the world. And I think they were pulling on their ancestors who had gotten them to the place where they were and thinking, we're going to say what we need to say. We're gonna create beauty and space in the world while we can do it and leave as much as we can of ourselves. You will not ignore or forget or misunderstand the glory that uh, is us. Because yeah. <laughs> they were brilliant about it. They were gorgeous. I remember yeah. this group called Pomo Afro Homo that would go around the country um, performing. And there was this moment in the early 90s where we were just all so excited as Black gay men. Like, I know of like 15 cities that had like Black gay men salons around where they do poetry readings. And occasionally, like if it was Philly or DC, like you would get one of those stars to stop by, like, Asado would be coming and you'd be like, oh my God, Asado's gonna be there. Or, or 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 Essex would be coming, or Marlon Riggs is like, oh, he's gonna talk about the film after we watch it. What? And we have all of that. And it feels in some ways like maybe the me's of the world took too long to do our jobs. And I feel like we lost all those people and things happened. People were creating, people wrote, but the community in a sense didn't continue in the ways that maybe 
were as visible or as accessible as I might hope. But part of what I do, or I hope I do in Original Kink, is right back toward that sense of community that was a gift to me at a point. I absolutely would not have survived without that gift. And I don't know if I would have killed myself, if I would have wasted away, if I would have inflicted myself on some poor cisgender woman in the universe. But this gift that they gave me allowed me to think that there was a way to be my authentic, yes, Vanta Black, hyper queer self in this world. And so, oh. I am just trying to reconnect with that. That's what I'm trying to do in Original King. To say, I heard you and I'm sorry, it took me 25 fucking years to get back here. But I'm not going to let another 25 years go by before I reconnect and share this gift that you gave to me and hope that that helps build some level of community and somebody else gets a little bit, a percentage, an iota of what y'all gave me. Busy Being Black will return after a short break. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with queer black poet and storyteller, Juby Ariola Headley. So the first thing to say is that I have a first edition here of Brother to Brother, in wow. which I, I first encountered Craig G. Harris's um, work in his moving poem, Hope mm-hmm. Against Hope which is so beautiful because it tracks the minutia, right? It's the, yeah. it is the details of these lives, how they like their names pronounced, their favorite colors, why they don't go down the street, why they love this person, who yes. they keep going back to. And yes. I wanna say that reading Original Kink, uh, like it fits comfortably alongside Brother to Brother. So I oh, absolutely thanks. think that you're, that, you're, that you're paying that gift forward 100%. You've made me feel so seen, so recognized. So Thank I can you tell you so that you're doing that. that. And the second thing I want to say is that, and I hope this isn't a weird way to construct, you know, kind of (laughs) queer connections across generations, Mm -hmm. but I was thinking that you are kind of like Chris uh, uh, Craig's progeny, right? You are the kind of, you are the kind of offspring of this, you know, long lost generation. I don't know. I hope that's not a weird way to to think about this, that, that this lineage is a bit more um reproductive than if you would ask me that quite or 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 posited that 10 years ago i might be weirded out by it but part of writing (laughs) original king i had this project i thought originally because i was driven to write a book you asked me about my poetic history you said you wanted to touch on that yeah i have had some poetic experiences or some interactions with poetry throughout my history but i didn't start writing poetry in earnest till about six years ago I'm very recently come back to poetry. Hold on, there hold was... on, hold on. What? What? This tremendous. <laughs> Love... right. Right. No, uh, six years. <laughs> what? I hesitate to tell this story because I always feel like in some way 
delegitimizes me. Like, I don't have that story to tell you that I was that kid writing poetry in a notebook at eight years old, that I won a, a high school poetry contest, that I studied in undergrad. None of that is true. I have had some experiences with poetry in undergrad, but I thought I was one of those people until very recent years who didn't get poetry. And I think part of it, this is what I say to myself, this is how I reconcile it in my head. I wasn't mature enough yet to be able to do what I needed to do, but I have a history. And part of writing a book is that you learn how to talk about writing the book and then learning how to talk about what I've written, the content. I'm starting to learn how to talk about myself and my history mm. and queerness and blackness in a larger sense. And I say all that to say, I have a legacy of fractured relationships with people I can't reconcile with because they're not on this plane anymore. My father died not knowing who I authentically was. Craig died somewhere in New York City and I hadn't spoken to him in six months. And I had literally been terrified because I knew he was dying. And so I disappeared. I withdrew. I know this about me. I have not been able to admit that for about 25 years. And this poem I wrote that is dedicated to Craig, Every God is a Slowly Dying Son, is literally my apology uh, to him that I was not able to deliver in his lifetime. Do you mind if I read um, part of it? May, sure. May I stop you there just for a moment? Sure, sure, sure. Um, he came to be with me the night before he died. In this construction, let the night before signify not the minutes and months before he physically died, but the moment he was dead to me. But there in the thick of his inescapable hurt, his immeasurable need, I could smell the shit on him. And I being human, which is to say the villain in this story, I denied him, afraid of being bitten by the bug that was devouring him. I mean, my heart broke reading that. My heart breaks rehearing it. It's very fascinating. I don't know I've reckoned with it. The, I've reckoned with it on one level because I wrote it down and I have shared it with the world. And once it's out in the world, I can't take it back, which is part of being relentlessly and rigorously honest or truthful, however you want to say it. So, but a lot of getting to this book was me having to do that work. That's part of why I wrote this book. I had work to do. I had to recognize who my father was and was not because in my mind, he was the villain. Mm. But not in life, I know that my father was a man who wanted what he thought was best for me. And I, I had to reconcile that because otherwise I would never have that thing we supposedly see called closure. I will tell you this, and this is going to be one of those odd, maybe mildly superstitious stories. I, after my father died, about six months after he died, and he died when I was 18, had one dream about him. And I don't know if you're familiar with that painting, Edvard Munch's The Scream. It's the one where it looks like somebody is rising in abject terror out of the abyss. In my dream, my father was coming up out of an abyss with a look of sheer terror on his face and his mouth open, reaching towards me. And I was terrified of him in that dream and I forced myself to wake up. And I regret that decision, or rather I regretted 
that decision for about 25 years because I did not have a dream about my father that I remember. And about six months after I finished this book, I had a dream where I was sitting in my father's lap at this age and this size, <laughs> hugging him and he was smiling and I had my head on his shoulder. And that is not something I could have imagined in life. Wow. But once I finished this book, I had that dream. So I am sure that means nothing but the internal work Juby needed to do to reconcile. But it's something. It's something. That's profound. Yeah. And and I felt about Craig the same way, that he was another line of a man in my life that I failed. Because I failed my father in some ways, I thought. And I absolutely believed I was not there for Craig when in the way I would have wanted to be as the person I've been able to become now. Yeah, and so how do you feel about that moment now? That moment you denied him? You said the question question you posed at the end of Every God is, does denial hurt less when there's no one to bear witness or more? Yeah. You know, I asked the question as part of the poem. It's, It's a reflection I'm not sure I have the answer to, but what I absolutely meant to do in the poem was bear witness to my own failure in that moment. I I have not reconciled that moment. I will always be apologizing for that moment. And part of the apology is writing this book and putting it into the world and talking to you and hopefully other people about the book and Craig and his legacy and that moment in history and what I did and didn't do. This is all part of the work I am obligated, I truly feel to do because of what I didn't do then. Or maybe in spite of what I didn't do then? It depends on how you think about it. I've covered in goosebumps. To bear witness to my own failure. I say bear witness all the time. And I say it because I think that we have a responsibility to bear witness to the lives of others. Yes. And so it's so interesting to hear you say bear witness to my own failures because that is is accountability, right? It is. It is so much of, I know my own life has been to say until recently, Uh, whatever happened back then happened back then and that doesn't matter now but actually I have to reckon with an older version of myself even if I don't like him very much I have to bear witness to my to my own failures and that's such a beautiful way to think about it there is a bell hooks book whose name is escaping me right now it might be real cool that might be black men and masculine yeah we real cool yeah yeah that's the one and in it she talks about Marlon Riggs Um, She talks about a lot of Black gay men. There's a chapter in it that talks about sort of um, her relationships with Black gay men, and she kind of frames it in a way of how they're more accessible to her and more open to her theses. But what she says is, yes, in um, Tongues Untied, Marlon Riggs says, Black men loving other Black men is a revolutionary act. But what I, Bell Hooks, because she's talking from the first person. What I say to Black queer men, Black gay men, is Black men revisiting their childhoods is a revolutionary act. And she says, and when I say that to Black gay men, they get it. And I read that and I thought, yes. I mean, childhood is relative, but I think I think this ties into so many things. I think it's, I think when we think of that, that sort of um, notion of Sankofa reaching back, you know, that go back mm-hmm. and fetch it, that, It's about accessing your past, not just historically. I carry so much with me that was the legacy of 
you know, the Frederick Douglass and the Phyllis Wheatley and the Audre Lorde, et cetera. But also I've got my own past to deal with. And I think the only way to build community and to enter community is to try to be as honest and true and authentic as you can be. And that means admitting your failures. I would love to live in a world where I have no regrets, but I will always be paying penance to me for, for example, for that, for how I wasn't there for Craig. And the way I pay penance is to write this book and try to be present for people in ways that I wish I'd been present for him. That I see as the work I'm supposed to be doing from this point forward is doing my own work internally so that I can be more present for other people and more empathetic to other people. Because how can I make space for you if I haven't if I haven't tackled my own shit? If I don't understand how I have failed in the world, how do I not demonize you when you fail in the world? How can I make space and go, yeah, I get how you failed here. And it doesn't make you the worst person in the world. It makes you someone who failed. See, I think that transformation and growth is a bit like long division. That's how I think about it. <laughs> it's hard. I'm not very I'm not very good at it. But you have to show your work, right? And, and it's in showing the work of the learning, of the growth, of the transformation, of the mistakes that you can correct them. It's like an honest confrontation with the work. And exactly. so I've, I've, and I'm not very good at math, but I've always thought there's a connection yeah. between long division and transformation. Like it's, it's most, it's most helpful. I think yeah. transformation is most helpful when other people can see it, when they can, when they can learn from it. Exactly. Because what are we doing if we're just, I don't know, and maybe I feel this because I feel, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm somebody who's called to bear witness publicly. Whereas mm -hmm. not everybody feels called to that. And so this kind of idea is transformation is long division feels very important to me and that I have to be able to show the work, show the mistakes yeah. and, and to own them and to, and to keep doing the math right, to, to keep going. I like the metaphor. I think it's very, it's very illustrative and very instructive. That works for me. I'm, I might use that in the yeah, future. Please. I will fully I'd be credit so honored. You. <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely fully credit you, but yes. A question um, I have, a question I have burning, sorry uh, to interrupt, yeah, yeah. is so <clears throat> six years ago, you said earlier, it was mm -hmm. kind of the moment that you kind of started. What, what was that? What was the, was there a spark? Did something cross your mind? Did you see something? Did you read something? What was that moment? I seem to dwell in dreamland. All I can tell you is six years ago is when I started writing poetry, but maybe about a year before that, I woke up with the idea that I absolutely had to write a book about my father. I can't tell you where that came from. Maybe something sparked it. I do not remember the inciting incident. I just became driven. I have to write a book about my father. And that felt as true as the grass at least appears to be green, whatever color it really is in the world. Um, I am hungry. Um, I am chubby. I am black. I mean, I had to write a book about my father. It was not a question. It was a statement of intent. And it was going to be done. And I started trying to write that book in nonfiction. And I don't write badly. I work for a nonprofit. I write reports and ghost write op-eds. And so I have some facility with nonfiction writing, but it there was no spark, to use your own word. There was no spark. I could feel that the fire was missing. And I was new enough to the process of writing that I also uh, didn't understand the difference between venting and building a character in a memoir. 
So my father was pretty much the source of all, all that is evil in the world in my initial tries. And I knew it was falling flat and I would show it to people and they would give me advice and I would try harder and it wasn't totally clicking. And then somebody, I don't even remember who said, you should take a poetry class because it might give you an additional lens. You don't have to write poetry, but it can give you an additional lens to approach your prose writing. And I have never thought of myself as someone who was a poet or got poetry before that moment, but I was so desperate at that point because I had this mandate and no way to achieve it. I thought, what the hell, how can it hurt? And I don't know why, but that poetry class uh, that I took just was, was fire. It was just wonderful. There was nothing amazing or unique about it. The woman who taught the class basically read poetry that she loved and then you know, said, okay, now sit with that for a minute. Now you write. And I just was like, I don't know why, but the imagery and the idea that metaphor was the thing and the language, I was just, I was like, yes, this is what I need to do. And I started writing poetry on my own over here in the corner. And I showed it to some people I knew to be poets and I'm blessed because I am sure that the first four or 500 poems I wrote and showed to people probably were absolute shit, but nobody said, sweetie, stop. No, yeah. <laughs> they encouraged me and they encouraged me to keep going. And I have not been driven to do a lot of things in my life, but I felt I was going to learn this thing called writing poetry. And I started taking classes and running at my credit card and going to workshops across the country if they would have me. I was like, I'm going to do poetry. I'm going to do poetry this has become a thing I must do. And I don't know if poetry is a release valve or some other great mechanism, but as I started exploring the book, I thought I was going to write in nonfiction. And as I started exploring writing and then poetry, I realized this was a lot less about my father or only my father. It was about all the daddies in my life. And like I say in my dedication, it was about the daddy and me. And it became this larger conversation in my head about what is this thing that we're told we must be that is man, that is masculine? And how am I doing that in the world? How do I want to do that in the world? How can I unmake some of the shitty, toxic, destructive lessons that have been taught to me? How can I unmake them in ways that help me and ideally somebody who picks up this book, move forward from that. How can I be relentlessly, authentically me in the world and still get to be daddy? Is that possible? And that became the question of the book. Um, and I explored, I think, through talking about my father and Craig and, and in a larger sense, moments that happen in the world. Um, two black men, two black queer men, and two women. Because mm -hmm. I think part of the conversation we have to have as black men is what space do we hold for our black women? They do, I don't know anybody ever argues that black women don't do the most for us. Yes. And you know, this last election, the conversation got heightened when women started to make it clear, we weren't saving your asses. America, the world, we were saving ourselves because y'all never step up for us. Exactly. We have exactly. to step up for our fucking selves. We as Black men need to start saying, 
how come we have been given so much and we're not paying it back? Can we legitimately say we have given as much as we've received? Are we even trying to give in some kind of reciprocity? We have to start talking about what space we hold for Black women, how we treat our Black women and femmes, because th this is not a cisgender conversation in my head. Mm. You know, we need to start talking about what space we make for people who are not cisgender Black men within the Black community, because that's my, that's my project as I see it. That's my goal. That's who I care about the most. But we have some work to do. We have some work to do. I still remember last year seeing a video of a Black man dragging a Black trans woman around, making fun of her, terrorizing her, and an audience of Black folks laughing at it. And I was just so disgusted by us. Because I can't, I'm us. I don't, I wish I could tell you. I think, I believe that who I've become is I would try to do something in that moment. But these are the questions we got to keep asking ourselves. This is how we got to keep trying to do the work. Are you really the person who would have stepped in? Mm -hmm. You've, because I have to become that person. I can't, I can't let y'all victimize us anymore. Because mm -hmm. that poor woman, she's us. She's me. I can't let y'all victimize us. The, the man dragging us around, that's not me. That is who I let terrorize me most of my life. Well, it's that complicity, right? As well, yeah, as well. I need to, like, exactly. That we are implicated in that. In that, yeah. I wrote about this with Travis Alabanza. You know, they had this tremendous performance called Burgers a few years ago. And oh, I was right. so, I was, I felt so useless at the end of that performance. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I don't know. Like, I think, I think Travis did this thing out of generosity, right? They created this, mm -hmm. they turned a horrible, embarrassing, humiliating moment into art to tell us a story, to teach us a lesson. And that that generosity has to be repaid. And that exactly. repayment of that generosity is action. And I said at the end, I, I, at that piece, I trust that we'll be here again, you know, Folsom and Red Palm, you know, like lathering praise on them, but we have to defend our siblings in the streets, right? Like we have to defend them where it also matters. We're almost out of time. I can't believe this. So, How is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> um, I do want, as I, as I take you through some of you and listeners through some of my, just, I've got a couple of lines I want to read from some of your poems. I would love to, and I'm going to ask you a final question, but I would love you okay. to read us out as well. So if you have a poem while I'm reading this, that okay. comes to mind, I'll, I'll let you decide which that is. So some of my favorite parts of original kink. Uh, this one's from America. I've dreamt your murder a million times. Just a tiny little death, America. <laughs> I've pitched forked to you until you geezered my birthright all over me. <laughs> Honestly, that's my favorite poem. I'm not going to hold you up too much. But I knew I had a book when I wrote that poem. That poem was relatively early in the process. But that's when I was like, damn, I got something. It's awesome. Better... I am better than you. Fuck you. I'll say it again. I am better than you. I'm not better than you by accident. Neither am I better than you by birth. I had better beaten onto my back with braided belts and broken broomsticks. I had better bullied into my brain on the ball court. Oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. Thank hot you. comb, Thank this you. is from hot comb, how calloused hands can minister such tenderness. 
And from leatherback trend to I'm a leatherback baby, sovereign among my pride, my sweat, my crumpled flesh, a source of fortune. Yeah, I've got two questions actually. If you were my mentor, knowing what you know now about both of us, what would you tell me? What would you say to me? Always trust your voice. That is the thing I have learned. I spent time in early writing this book, writing poetry, trying to write poems I thought I should write, not the poems I needed to write. I always fall back to Usher's Confessions. And it's silly, I know, but there's one line that's on. If I'm on the tell it, then I got to tell it all. <laughs> that's literally my mind. I love that. And I just try to be as relentlessly honest and raw and kinky and sexy and brutal and enraged and righteous and sinful as I am in life. And I'm like, whatever this poem needs, it can have. And that is what, as a mentor, I would try to tell folks, let your work, let your voice on the page or in performance do what it needs to do. Don't second guess it, let it lead. And it's kind of a trick. It kind of requires a little bit of shift in position, but you can let the voice come out rather than try to force the voice out or dictate where it goes. Don't be afraid. Let it go where it needs to go. You might not be able to publish that, but you might. That's not never right with publishing in mind. Write with joy and art and truth in mind. Gene mm, Lloyd says we're all there's a part of all of us that's trying to get expressed. I believe that. I believe that. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Revolution is what literally popped into my head. And I tend not to say things like that, but I also don't mean armed civil unrest. I mean it is clear to me in ways that is not would not have been true two or three or five years ago, maybe even two or three or five months ago, that our systems are thoroughly broken. And I don't know that they can be resuscitated. I think we need different systems. And I mean that from policing to prison reform to capitalism wholesale. I'm not sure how much longer we can all afford to invest in a system that requires that somebody starve to death in order for us to fight for 5% of the scraps while 5% of the people hold 95% of the wealth. So yeah, what do I hope for revolution? I mean it today and I pray I keep meaning it. Juvi, I feel so full at the minute and I'm so grateful. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing yourself. Thank you for original kink. Um, I hope we get to stay in touch. I, I absolutely hope we do. Let's 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 make a commitment because I need to. Thank you for you. I, I don't know how to say it any different. The you-ness of you <laughs> has stunned and uplifted me today. Juby Ariola Headley is a queer Black poet and storyteller. He's a 2018 Penn America Emerging Voices Fellow and holds an MFA from the University of Miami. His work explores themes of manhood, vulnerability, rage, tenderness, and joy. And his debut collection of poems, Original Kink, is available now from Sibling Rivalry Press.
Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.